G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and this is a doozy of a, a dangerous uh, conversation. I'm going to get a lot of hate for even talking to someone like this, because their stories aren't supposed to be heard. But I do think it's important just to hear the actual experiences of people who are collateral damage in our big, fancy, beautiful, fabulous culture wars. And in a week like this, when if you live in Sydney, you're only just coming down from a two or three week extravaganza of pride in everything that the LGBTQIA plus community has achieved. There has been not a whisper of dissent from just the sheer relentless fabulousness of it all. The sequins, the feather boas, the waxed, oiled chests and pectoral muscles of drag queens sitting astride gigantic inflatable penises. It's been marvellous, i got to tell you. And I kicked the whole extravaganza off on ABC, the national broadcaster, three weekends ago at Fair Day, which is the family-friendly LGBTQIA plus event, Come one, come all, grandma and the kids hear about how fantastic it is to be trans. I interviewed several trans people on the air live uh, and they were fabulous people and God bless them. Uh, And I have since hung out with several of my trans friends. Um, Some of those people are binary. Some of those people are non-binary. I'm very much... I think I, I've earned my bona fides in the in the trans space in terms of making it clear that I have absolutely no problem with transgender people. I did an entire segment, an entire episode rather, about J.K. Rowling, which copped me shit from both sides. But I was made I made it absolutely clear that trans people are real and exist and deserve to transition and deserve all of our support and no prejudice or bigotry or discrimination. And at the same time, and at the same time, because I am a person who likes to deal in nuance and detail instead of arm-waving hysteria, it is possible that in our zeal to make life better for traditionally shat-upon communities, that's the technical term if you're an anthropologist, a traditionally shat-upon community, of which I am a member. I mean, I'm married to a guy. Uh, My grandparents uh, survived the Holocaust. You know, I've got the Jew card. I've got the gay card. I've got a a number of cards, you know, and I'm working on the disability card maybe, you know, if I could uh, figure out a way to lose a leg. Anyway, uh, I won't let you in on too much of my future plans. They'll call me Hopalong Zeps. It'll, uh, you know, I think I've had my bona fides in supporting people who have been traditionally shat upon. And nonetheless, it just irks me when there's an insistence that there that there is there is no problem when a problem may exist. So then I go sniffing around to see whether or not it's true that there is no problem. And the no problem that my community insists does not exist is an over-identification uh, of transness, uh, perhaps a, a haste on the part of the medical profession to validate 
the trans identity of young people who may simply be be confused about their gender or sexuality, who may be who may have internalized homophobia and they may be lesbians, a disproportionate number of them are on the autism spectrum. The possibility that in our enthusiasm for affirming the lived experience of gender dysphoric people, we may also be catching up in our net of sparkles and glitter uh, a certain proportion of people who really don't belong on the train, the train to transition. And Casey Miller is one of them. Um, Casey's a female and male and now back to female detransitioner who is speaking out about the pediatric transition situation. And Casey asked their followers on Twitter who the followers would like them to talk to, and my name popped up. Casey first came to my attention uh, in a viral video that they posted in October, last October, uh, and I noticed it. It's a, it's a video of Casey lo- sitting in a car, staring straight at the camera and sharing some of their experiences. What you see is a, a youngish, fresh-faced, what looks like a young man with male pattern baldness, um, and this is how the video goes. So I got out of my haircut because um, my hair was driving me nuts. And I shaved it because I'm tired of watching my hair thin out. And it's less distressing if I shave it. So when I talk about being too far gone, not I don't really know what else to call it. Um, this is what I mean. This is how deep my voice is. Um, <clears throat> it's gotten deeper over time and it's settled. Um, this is what I mean by hair loss. Um, and it just keeps getting worse, it keeps thinning, it keeps receding backwards. Um, you know, and I'm not exactly sure that's coming back. Um, those are the main things when I talk about being androgenized um, to a point of no return. Um, I really don't see those being fixable. So that's when I talk about, you know, just kind of staying how I am, regardless of how I feel. Um, that's why, just because I, I don't really see me personally being able to come back from what's happened so far. So I hope that's a little explanatory, um, just to kind of give a little bit more of a, um, like, kind of the, let me reword that, just to kind of, you know, talk about, like, give more awareness to the situation, um, kind of, so you can see where I'm at. Words are not working well with me right now. I'm just gonna cut this off. There you go. You know, this this is what happens when you give a woman testosterone this for five years. This is what happens, essentially. So, you know, that's it. Stay safe. So that's the first time I saw Casey. And when I got an email from them, I was confronted with a little bit of a conundrum of journalistic integrity, right? Many people who have the loudest voices on this issue say, and I have some sympathy for this view, that it that we shouldn't do interviews like this one because to do so is to sort of play into the hands of transphobic conservatives who want to undermine justice for trans people altogether by shining a spotlight on a vanishingly rare number of cases who should never have transitioned in the first place 
And I get that. And I get that that dynamic is happening and that there are bad actors on the right. Matt Walsh in America, Tucker Carlson, um, people who have never had the interest of trans people or just of general human flourishing, frankly, uh, in mind, uh, and who will cherry pick and present and amplify all of the flaws of the trans community and every single little case where someone has been misled in order to try to present that as being the norm and inflate the scale of the crisis. When Matt Walsh was on Joe Rogan's podcast, he overestimated the number of transgender procedures and detransitioners by something like a thousandfold or 10,000fold. I mean, the man has spent so long, he's an anti-trans activist, has spent so long focusing on this crisis. The only people he speaks to are the people who have had problems in this area and who have detransitioned. Those are the only people who reach out to him. That he has a completely skewed vision of the landscape of what's actually going on. But I don't think I do. I mean, these are my friends. These are my people. This is my community. I'm a journalist. It's also largely my beat. I don't think I'm a voice who spends a lot of time banging on about how we have to save the children, save the children from the transgender ideology that's coming to get them. Most people who come out as trans are trans and need to be trans and will be happier being trans, and that's fine. All credit to them. But I'm not going to throw under the bus a cohort of people who either have mental health issues or are finding it difficult to come out as gay or lesbian or queer or bi or are on the spectrum or are social outcasts or excluded or are having behavioral issues or having problems at home. I don't want to throw those people who are having issues around gender under the bus by saying, okay, in the interests of transgender acceptance, you're going to have to get on top of this train and we're going to start doing, we're going to start shoving pills in your mouth and performing surgery on you because that's the only way to be happy once you start thinking that you're born into the wrong sex, the wrong body. I mean, that just strikes me as a horrendous Faustian pact, an awful moral trade-off. And if you're finding yourself thinking, Josh, stop being such a nuance bro, like that is not what's happening. Of course, if that was on the other side of the ledger, then we w- would need to hear more stories about it. But nobody is having pills shoved down their throat and experimental surgeries performed on them. This is nonsense. It's not happening. Well, maybe that's why you have to receive more emails from the Casey Millers of the world. And maybe that's why you have to follow your journalistic instinct or your instinct for actually understanding issues and just talk to them about what happened to them. This episode is in no way intended to imply that Casey's case is the majority of cases or is even a significant minority of cases. The reality is we don't know. There's no good data on this. It's only an N of one. But it is a real human life. And Casey's story deserves to be told just as much as the people with sequins and feather boas and beautiful waxed oiled pectoral muscles deserve to be told. Enjoy this conversation with Casey Miller. Casey Miller.
So I have been in outpatient uh, mental health treatment because obviously coming to the realization that uh, decisions that you made as a 16-year-old um, to physically transition to the opposite sex and why you came to those conclusions, um, that, that can definitely have a big mental toll on you. Um, I was definitely in my feels a lot. I knew I needed to seek help, and I sought help, and I spent uh, several weeks in an intensive outpatient program, uh, which I found extremely beneficial for me. And now I'm in outpatient behavioral health. Um, so I've that's been what preoccupying that mean, a lot. Casey? How long does like how many hours a week does that occupy? Um, so there's different levels in the United States. Um, there's intensive outpatient adult day program. Adult day program is seven hours of group therapy a day, five days a week. And intensive outpatient is uh, four hours of group therapy a day, three days a week. It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. It's very tiring. You wouldn't. Sounds you wouldn't. Both tiring and also expensive. How is that funded? Even. Um, actually, my insurance is really good about covering um, mental health wow. related things. So my copay was very small. Um, Amazing. That. I think it was like $5 a day, $5 US a day. See, this is what a lot of people don't understand in America when they're like, oh, we should have universal health care like other countries do, like Canada and Australia. I mean, there's no way that anything like that would be funded. <laughs> like, if you have good insurance in America, then actually, when I was living there, I found that the health insurance system, whilst frustrating and like difficult to deal with, and it's annoying to have to deal with like HIPAA and all these crazy forms and like who takes what insurance and stuff once you're actually in the system getting it it covers so much more than uh any place that has socialized medicine does so that's good that you get in the care uh and and how do you spend the rest of your time do you study do you have a job do you uh what do you do um so i didn't have a job i tried to go back to work so on top of the whole um transition stuff and some other mental health issues i have some physical conditions as well which i thought i'd put in remission um, so I was originally in nursing school. I was going to be, um, a nurse, uh, cool. get my associate's degree. And that was in 2021 to 2022, but I developed, uh, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome starting in the fall of 2021 and throughout the spring of 2022. Um, it's heart and nervous system. Hmm. So essentially my vasculature just doesn't work correctly. Um, so it stays consistently vasodilated and because of that my heart has to work overtime just to circulate the same amount of blood and to oxygenate everything it's a very gross oversimplification but the <laughs> result be. is increased heart rate crazy. we're allowed to uh oversimplifications work for me <laughs> um increased heart rate uh lightheadedness um and just kind of some complications with that. Chronic fatigue, that's another really big one. Um, we also discovered that I have EDS, um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder, and that was causing a lot of chronic pain. Long and short, I went from being a somewhat fully functional young adult to not being able to lift 40 pounds, not being able to stand up for 20 minutes without feeling like I want to pass out. Um, so I had to medically drop out of nursing school. Um, so that was kind of a kick in the pants and I've been trying to figure out what to do. I was thinking about social work. I was thinking about psychology. Um, but now I am looking to return to school for biochem. Great. How old are you? 
I'm 22. And did any of these health problems predate your transition? Like, what what is your opinion about the? Is there a causation there, or would these things have happened anyway? Um. So interestingly enough, I I think the POTS was more stress related. Looking back, I think I had symptoms of it in times of stress as an adolescent, but it wasn't an issue at all until um, like the high stress period in nursing school, um, which there was just a bunch of stuff going on mentally. And that was also looking back the first time that I was even contemplating the idea of transition regret. Um, I would make jokes like, oh, it'd be really crappy if I regretted this because like, look at me like, but I don't regret this. I, you know, um, and kind of thinking through that in my head, but really just pushing it back while also dealing with basically drinking um, like through a fire hose and getting all this information about uh, like clinical nursing practice and medications and conditions and knowing that if you screw up, you could kill somebody and all that stuff all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah okay let's just let's just go back to your teens then because I remember seeing your seeing that video that you posted just in passing as the you know the way that one sees anything that goes viral and has a moment uh and I thought it was I thought it was very touching um and to take us back to a few years before that I guess and at what point in your adolescence like when you went through puberty as a female how did you feel about yourself So I had a lot of conflicting feelings about myself and my body. Um, But looking back, I think a lot of that was just normal female insecurity. But because of uh, the environment that I was raised in and also um, having a background of uh, sexual abuse as a child, I, we, we didn't really talk about body image issues or how common that was. Um, so I thought this was just a completely isolated issue. Um, I was a pretty sheltered kid as well. So I, I just thought that like everybody else was fine with their body and I was having issues with my body and only I was having issues with my body. I didn't realize that virtually every other teenage girl is going to have issues when they hit puberty. They're not going to like their periods and they're not going to you know, like how their body develops in certain ways or have issues with weight or, um, you know, how their body looks in clothes and how boys look at them. I I didn't realize that that was a universal issue just because that was something that was never talked about. Mm. Um, And did you have crushes crushes on boys or girls? um, I, I think I somewhat had crushes on boys but they weren't really as deep as with girls i was mostly attracted to girls which uh for a little bit of background i grew up fundamentalist christian and uh church was not very happy about anything homosexual um i i was not out in the church they they thought i was um just like a straight little poster child but in in terms of the messaging that i had received from an early age about homosexuality same-sex attraction being gay as far as i knew it was a choice you were um, a predator, you were disgusting, you were an abomination. Right. Um, and where and are so, you? Where did you grow up, Casey? Um, so I was born in Massachusetts. And then when I was eight, we moved to Pennsylvania, where I've lived since. Rural Pennsylvania? Um, the area that I'm in, not to give myself away too much, it's it's kind of a weird mix of rural and um, suburban. Mm. So it, I, it's I don't interesting. Mean I only ask because no, no. for people who don't know, the United States, Pennsylvania is a very odd state in that it has, it's just kind of half 
like the deep south and half like progressive cities so it makes yeah it it's it's really hard. weird that's why like when trying to describe it i say like it's generally red with really blue pockets ideologically i mean it's weird because like the town that i live near we have like a major medical center we have a research university a medical school um that area is pretty um liberal pretty accepting um but then if you go 20 minutes outside of town um it's the opposite you're in very conservative backcountry mm. it's it's an interesting uh dichotomy and were you were you questioning your faith when you were in your teens or did you basically swallow it hook line and sinker um i have a propensity to question everything much to the dismay of my teachers my preachers everybody um even my science teachers they would get so annoyed because i they would state something and i'd be like well why and they're like stop asking why um <laughs> i would always ask questions but i bought into it pretty like heavily. Great teachers that's a great uh, great spirit of uh, of academia to instill stop asking questions yeah or okay well how did we come to that conclusion okay we came to that conclusion 20 years ago what's the data say about it now and oh my my bio teacher hated me because i would always ask so many questions anyways um i i did ask questions um but generally speaking i bought into it pretty hard um because it was just what i was i had grown up with it was what yeah, i knew cool. Sure. And you mentioned sexual assault when you were younger. What was that? I mean, you don't need to talk about it any more than you're comfortable with. But oh no, it's fine. Um, I'm I'm relatively an open book with a lot of these things. Um, so I was uh, sexually abused by my father from the estimate is about age four and a half to seven and a half. At which time, um, I revealed the abuse. I was removed from the home by my mom, and uh, investigation began by Massachusetts State Police. Uh, the four and a half to seven and a half is an estimation based on uh, forensic psychology reports in terms of uh, me being interviewed when I was like seven and a half. So for all we know, it could have been happening sooner. Mm. Um, Horrendous. So I'm sorry. And was that was that properly dealt with by the authorities? Was he charged? Uh, yes, he was charged. He's currently incarcerated in prison on the sex offender list. Um, they gave him the max sentence that they could. Mm. What was your relationship with your mom like during all that? Um, it's interesting because I don't remember too much about that time. Um, it the only things that I remember, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid, um, and our relationship was okay. But that was where I kind of saw the shift from her being a mom to her being a caregiver. Um, she's also a nurse, um, has worked in nurse management, quality control and risk management and all of that stuff, um, and has worked previously as a pediatric nurse. And when I started really displaying symptoms of um, depression and anxiety or particularly uh, panic attacks, which happened shortly after we left the home, um, that's when she kind of kicked into nurse mode and started to, you know, de-escalate, manage the situation. And that's mm -hmm. where the relationship started to change. Um, to the point where over the years I can look and, you know, she's been my mom at certain times, but other times I can absolutely see where she shifts into like caregiver mode, caretaker mode. Um, and I, I, I've kind of turned into not just her child, but her patient. And so how did you feel about that? Um, I didn't realize it was happening until um, recently, of course, kind of looking back on the dynamics and so on. Um I, I understand that was what we needed to do to survive and that she was just trying to keep me stable. Um, and, and certainly there's 
been certain things that we've said to each other, certain things that she's done, um, certain things I've described to therapists that they have said is definitely classified as emotional abuse. She's definitely not <laughs> completely innocent in my upbringing, but at the same time, um, when we talk about it today, she goes, I understand and I'm sorry, but I was just trying to keep you alive because I, ever since I was age nine, I was expressing suicidal ideation. So she was just trying to keep me from really falling off the edge. And mm. um, I mean, that's, that, that, that's all I could ask for when you're just trying to manage um, a child in and out of crisis as a single mom. Yeah. Did you find her cold though at the time when she was in nurse mode? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I didn't understand this um, until I went through part of nursing school myself because um, you kind of just flip into a mode. You can't just panic. You start running through the algorithms that you have in your head. All right, I'm going to start assessing. I'm going to start evaluating the situation Like, and um, you know what needs to be done, um, what needs to be managed, how do we de-escalate the situation, what do we need to do to move forward um, in terms of not being able to turn that off. Because I, I would jokingly say, like, I'm your kid. I'm not your patient. Like, treat me like your kid. And she's like, I'm a nurse. I can't turn it off. And right. um, then, then I experienced the not being able to turn it off thing, though. Um, a, a year on from it, I, I can turn uh, assessment mode off, but that's because I'm not submerged in it. And you mentioned suicidal ideation. Uh, how young were you when you first started thinking those sorts of thoughts? Um, so I was nine. I recall um, first time I started thinking about uh, or confronting death and thinking about death was uh, when my grandma died. Um, so she had breast cancer and she passed, um, trying to think, it was July of 2009. Sorry. So I actually, I was still eight. Um, so she passed in July of 2009. And um, this was in the midst of moving from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania and switching schools. And it, um, it, it was just like a really rough and tumultuous time and um, understanding that something had gone horribly wrong. I, I had no idea what sex was or what sexual abuse was. I just knew that something really bad had happened to me and that all of a sudden my dad was very dangerous and that we had to run away and that there was a threat to our safety. And um, I, I had feelings about this because I was starting to blame myself because I, I, I always thought that um, based on the conditioning that anything that had happened. I, I don't know. I, somehow I started to blame myself for the abuse um, because of the way that my dad had reinforced basically anything going wrong in his life was my fault and it, he would pin it on me and my mom. And when I found that my grandma had died and I had seen this person that was once living and now she's dead, I, that was the first time that I confronted mortality. And I, you know, thinking, well, it, everybody's going to end up like that one day. Why can't I end up like that now? I don't like what I'm feeling. You know, and it was the first time that I, I it, it's weird because I, I didn't think, oh, I could just go kill myself. But it, it was the first time that I confronted death and thought, well, why can't that be me? Mm. You poor little thing. <laughs> I just want to go <laughs> I, back in time and give you a hug. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard because like I can say all of this stuff and. I, you know, I, I try and refrain from cracking jokes at my own expense. To me, this is just my life. This is just what I live with. It's pretty baseline for me. And then I realize how screwed up some of it is. Yeah. Whenever I just I mean, talk an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old should not have to have gone through that. I mean, you, you lived an entire life of trauma before the age of eight. And to like to then be in such a situation that 
your crazy little brain thinks that the solution is that it has to extinguish itself because like it's to blame for all of the shit that has been thrown at it is is tragic it's horrible i'm sorry that, that all of that happened but as you say what do you do except you do the work and you move on and you dust yourself down and you get off and i'm glad that you've done that um so anyway you enter your teens we hear about you going through puberty you start to have crushes on girls that mm-hmm. doesn't mesh with your faith what happens next how do you start thinking about your own identity so um for a little bit of reference i also have a condition called pcos polycystic ovarian syndrome so um i am generally a larger female i'm 58 i have a larger frame um and i always had trouble fitting in girls clothes i also had some weight issues but mostly it was um I, I ran into issues with clothes and things like the shoulders. Like I would, I would always rip shirts because they were all, I, it was always too small and too narrow in the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I had to sh- mostly shop in the men's section by the time I reached high school for shoes um, because I was a t- size 12 wide women's and you try going into a shoe store and buying a self size 12 wide women's off the shelf. It's just not going to happen. Um, and that, that just kind of fit with, um, what I was more comfortable with. Um, I I had a preference towards, I guess, what you would say, male stereotypical activities. I was a tomboy. I was always a tomboy. Um, And especially when you're dealing with body image issues and you're slightly bigger than your um, female peers and, you know, you're kind of thinking about trying to lose weight and trying and it's not succeeding and you don't know how to really approach food correctly because, um, neither my mom or I really had a healthy relationship with food, um, you start to try and look for ways to hide the issue. So a lot of my clothes were on the baggier side. I tended more towards androgyny, um, just out of personal preference, but also because it would hide my size a little bit. Um, and I, it's difficult because I, I didn't view myself like other girls because my body didn't necessarily look like theirs, but I think it was also just making it a bigger problem than it actually was. Right. Yes, as teenagers do. Yeah. Um, so that combined with, like, it, because of the church that I was in, they loved that I was modest because I was very modest. I didn't, you know, because of the androgyny and so on, I always wore button-down shirts. My thing was plaid button-down shirts um, <laughs> and jeans. Um, that was kind of my standard outfit. It was very modest and they liked that, but um, they didn't like the fact that it wasn't so overtly feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, and at all the other girls in youth group, they were pretty stereotypically feminine um and we're also very vocal about having crushes on boys but oh don't worry we're abstinent and i was the only one that wasn't and that was kind of questioned and and also hearing like the prevailing stuff in youth group um like lessons specifically on homosexuality homosexuality in teens and that it's a choice it's a fad it's a phase it's just gonna pass um and all of that stuff. And then on the adult side, hearing like the adult sermons on homosexuality that, you know, homosexuals are predators and that um, they're, they're trying to, um, I guess, seduce straight people. And they're just these horrible people. And that's all a choice and that it's, you know, sin of the flesh and all, all these horrible things. And internalizing that hearing, well, you know, gay people are predators. And knowing that my dad was a predator, I started to feel like 
a, a predator for being attracted to girls and trying so desperately hard to change that and it just i, I it wasn't changing um so and grappling like, with that casey did you say that you weren't abstinent and the other girls were oh sorry no um we were all abstinent they all talked about having crushes on boys and i never did i see what you're saying yeah okay and so where did you first come up with the idea or encounter the idea that people could be born in the wrong sex in the body of the wrong sex Oh boy. Um, I remember this so vividly. Um, it was April, May of 2017. And for a little bit of reference, I had a relationship, um, in the previous year, I was a junior in high school, I had a relationship with a girl and my mom found out and I was just in a mentally dark place and I got really suicidal. Non-Americans. A junior is your second last year? Yes. Um, Year 11, we would probably call it yeah you're 11 um and i was in a really dark place my mom found out she flipped um and i got really suicidal i was a risk to myself admitted myself inpatient um over christmas break um 2016 going into 2017 and this entire time i was really grappling with you know hating the fact that i was gay hating the fact i began to tell myself i wish i wasn't a woman because then I could like women. If if I was a man and I liked women, I would be straight and no one would bother me. Um, and mm. just having this intense self-hatred around my sex um, b- based on my sexuality and based on the homophobia that I had experienced and also um, my mom just really not liking that I was gay. Um, that was a really big issue. Um, and of course, when you type into Google, I'm a woman and I don't want to be a woman, what do I do? Um, eventually that's going to lead to transgender stuff. And the first video that I remember seeing that showed me that physical transition, medical transition was an actual thing and that it was possible was um, a New York Times op-ed on the military transgender couple, Logan and Leela Ireland. Um, I don't know if you've seen that or heard of them. Um, no, I haven't. But um, Logan Ireland, um, was, uh, tra- is, or was, I don't know if he's currently in still was a transgender service member member in the United States air force. Um, he kind of presented more as like a butch lesbian or stereotypically masculine woman, short hair, liked women, and then transitioned to male. But when you see the guy, it, there, there's this joke in, um, gender critical circles that, oh, you can always tell when somebody's trans. Uh, You couldn't tell with that guy. And I was absolutely blown away to find out that he was born a woman. The guy's jacked. He was probably the most jacked person on his unit because they showed him in comparison with the other guys. Huge biceps, big muscles. Um, You couldn't see his top surgery scars. And like, it, it was the first time that I had even seen that like you could start as a woman and in my mind end up looking like a man and a very muscular man. And I, I thought, no one would mess with me if I looked like that. Mm. And that's just where it, you know, it, it just fell down the rabbit hole for me. What did that look like? Um, like what? Eventually, f- um, from there, because the other half of that was um, Layla Ireland, who is a male to female transgender individual. And in my opinion, you also couldn't tell with her that she was um, biologically male. Um, but for me, obviously, the the female to male aspect was a little bit more intriguing and applicable. So that um, triggered me to look into female to male YouTubers. And I found 
um, a lot of these channels of uh, trans men who dedicate all of their videos to their transition. And especially some of the younger ones, there are um, trans guys, 16, 17, 18 years old. And that's where I saw video after video after video of people, you know, posting one year on testosterone, post-op top surgery, and talking about their transformations and how their life went from unlivable, unbearable to now they're these happy, outgoing, confident people, and they feel like they're finally who they're meant to be. And that, you know, people respect them now and that they just fit into society better um, and that they could, you know, wear men's clothes and do men's things. And, you know, everything was all hunky-dory. It was fine. And and I, I started to think that maybe that was something that I wanted too. So what did you do? Um, from there... I, I think from there, then I started to kind of buy into the idea of um, if you meet the sex stereo or the stereotypes of the opposite sex, and you have this desire to not be your current sex, and that must mean that you you should be the opposite sex, and you should transition, and that that's your identity, that's immutable, and that this needs to happen. And around May, June, I um, quote unquote came out to my mom. Um, as trans. At first, it was non-binary because I kind of just wanted to be gender neutral androgynous, but um, that was not going to work. She said, well, I'm that's not a real thing. I'm not going to take you seriously. So I was like, oh, screw it. I'll just go for broke. Um, and I, I said, well, I'm, I'm meant to be a dude. And at first, she was very adverse and was like, this sounds weird. This sounds like something you just found on the internet, which it was. Um, but then eventually she kind of took a step back and was like, hold on, let me do some research, let me do some digging. And she'd found that um, there was actually clinical research going on about trans and um, specifically gender affirming care in youth and saw that the regret rate, was, the, the infamous uh, detransition rate is um, less than 2% and saw that there are major children's hospitals um, offering gender clinics um, and that we're also doing research. And she thought, okay, you know, this, this is what my child is saying. My child is not stupid. Um, you know, the internet's the internet, but my child is not stupid. And I don't think they'd be making this up. Um, I'm not an expert. Nobody around here is an expert. Let's go to experts to try and figure this out. Mm. When you just mentioned in passing the infamous detransition rate of 2%, what do you mean by that? So there is this um, prevailing idea that is peddled um, in the transgender community that um, detransition is non-existent, nobody detransitions, or it is a statistically irrelevant amount of people that detransition. Some people say it's a less than 2% detransition rate, or in some, there's one study, I think, that said that they had a 0.3% detransition rate. Um, and by detransition, they mean um, returning to live as your birth sex and or um, stopping uh, medical interventions, whether that's hormone therapy or um, other medical interventions that somebody might undergo to physically transition. Um, but then they also say, well, in that 2%, the majority of those people that do detransition do so because of transphobia, not being able to afford hormones. It's not because they actually regretted it. It's not because it was the wrong decision. It's because the world is making it hard for them to live as quote unquote, who they really are. Um, 
And that statistic was something that my mom ran into. That was something that eventually when we did go to a gender clinic, she was told by the clinician that evaluated me that this is, a, you know, very, very low regret rate, very low detransition rate, um, that this was, it, it was used to defend this as a correct decision. Right. In fact, there was a big study that got some press, I think about a year ago out of was it the Netherlands or Denmark, which had looked at detransitioning and had and was being presented in? Uh, there were a lot of articles in the U.S. press, which is where I found out about this, saying that this proves that detransition rates are negligible. Uh, you know, somewhere in the two percent range or something. And then <laughs> Jesse Single, who is like a dog on a bone with uh, trying to dig into this stuff, a journalist who has done probably more research into all these this data than anybody else, actually contacted the person, spoke to the researcher themselves to clarify this. And the cohort of people whom the researcher had taken in this study were people who currently self-identify as transgender. In other words, of the cohort of people who currently self-identify as transgender, a very small fraction of them detransitioned. But the researcher was saying, you would expect that to be the case because people who have successfully detransitioned no longer self-identify as transgender because they've transitioned. And that was a point that was either elided or confused by all of the American press reports. So that was yet another uh, kind of line in the sand of people saying, see, almost nobody detransitions. But you're sort of tautologically excluding anybody who would have successfully detransitioned from the cohort of people who you're analyzing. So anyway, it, you're just saying take those statistics with a grain of salt. But your mum wasn't in a position to take them with a grain of salt because she was going to experts and experts were saying this is, this is almost certainly not going to happen. So what happens next? Do you have a psychological evaluation? Um, yes. So there's also this other... Um myth that it is extremely difficult to get into gender clinics, um, especially pediatric gender clinics, that the whole process take months and months and years, and that there's a super thorough evaluation. Um, obviously, things could have changed between now and then, um, but I'm willing to bet that things have probably gotten easier than when I went through it, especially with the change from standards of care seven to standards of care eight. Um, in terms of a lot of those safeguards, um, especially on the pediatric and adolescent side that were lifted. Uh, but for me, we self-referred through the internet. My mom sent an email to Children's Hospital Philadelphia's Gender and Sexuality Development Program in July of 2017. I had my first appointment in September. It was 90 minutes. I had my second appointment in October, also 90 minutes. And after that appointment, I was referred to a local clinic for testosterone, and I started in December and then six months later, I had a double mastectomy. So looking back on it, that's that's a pretty fast process. One thing that non-Americans might find weird about the American healthcare system is that because care is not rationed through the public purse, there's no gatekeeper between the consumer and the specialist. Uh, so in in countries with public health, with socialized medicine, to use the controversial term, you would always need a, a general practitioner, a family doctor to be the gatekeeper in order to even see a specialist. And that doctor would be the person who funnels you either towards the gender clinic or towards further psychiatric follow-up. In the United States, because your private health insurance is paying for things, you can just go directly to specialists and you don't need any gatekeeper. Do you have any idea about whether or not that changes the dynamic outside of the States? Have you spoken with anyone out, outside the States about what their experience was? 
Um, I have spoken to people outside of the states, but not specifically about how um, socialized healthcare systems impact their access to just healthcare in general or um, gender affirming care. I, I will say, at least in my area, there are certain specialties that you still need to get a referral through primary care or uh, your GP in order to get into the office. Like you can't just call the office as a new patient and right. get, get an appointment. But that's not um, the case for for a sexual health clinic or a trans. Uh, correct. Correct. I, you can refer from the internet. That's one of those. Um, I also, I think in behavioral health as well, because, uh, recently, even with the adult day hospital, I was able to self-refer. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you show up, you are a survivor of sexual abuse. You have this mom who's in nurse mode, treating your chronic illnesses. You've had a death in the family. You've moved states You've admitted yourself to an inpatient psychiatric clinic already, and they take two 90-minute sessions to conclude that none of that is relevant to your current claim to be trans. Correct. Did they talk to you about that stuff? Um, from what I can recall, and I, I don't remember too much about the conversations but I do remember that Dr. Hawkins had stated at one point, I forget whether it was in the, I think it was in the second session. Yeah, it was in the second session. Cause I remember, I remember the locations. I remember what the rooms looked like. I remember a ton of what was said specifically, but she said I, like the, to the extent of which um, the impact of the abuse was investigated with me, she said something along the lines of now, I know that you have a painful childhood history. We're not going to get into it. Um, and we're only talk about stuff as um, far as you're comfortable. But do you think that this is impacting how you feel? And of course, I had already had this conversation with my mom, who was telling me like, you have literally told me prior to finding transgender stuff on the internet, if I was a boy, the abuse wouldn't have happened. And she was like, I, I'm pretty sure your father, I, it, this is kind of callous, this is a little bit screwed up, but she was like, I'm pretty sure your, your father would have abused you anyways, whether you were a boy or a girl, that was just who he was. Um, thanks, mom, that's really reassuring. But um, I had already voiced this, you know, kind of hatred for myself as female before I even knew what trans was, and then finding trans and thinking you know, I have all this body insecurity and all of that stuff. And she had voiced several times to myself and Dr. Hawkins that she suspected this was a response to the childhood abuse and that mm -hmm. this was just a coping mechanism for me. Um, and literally the only, to the extent it was investigated with me was, do you think this is related to the abuse? And I said, no. And that's, that's as far as it went with me. I mean, it's ludicrous to ask the patient. <laughs> of course, if you're a young person who thinks that they've found the holy grail that's going to provide a solution to all of their problems, simply saying, are you doing this out foolishly because you think it's going to solve your problems is seems like malpractice. It's like, I mean, it's like saying to someone, do you think that this reaction is just psychosomatic and doesn't actually have anything to do with you know, what's really going on. I mean, if the whole nature of something being psychosomatic or someone being mistaken about themselves is that they can't see that they were mistaken. If they could see that they were mistaken, then, if, then they wouldn't be sitting in front of you. Um, anyway, so that's the extent of the interrogation as you recall it. And then <laughs> once you start, once you start on 
testosterone two months and two sessions after first encountering the clinic, what happens? How do you start feeling? Um, so I responded pretty quickly to testosterone and um, on my original Twitter account, which I have since uh, deactivated just because of how I had gained all of the notoriety and the attention. I have a new one though, and I'm starting to make waves there. Um, but on there, I had talked about how I had started, my voice began to drop within two weeks of starting testosterone on a very low dose. And I had people responding to me telling me that was not humanly possible. Um, but it happened. I, I responded fairly quickly. Um, within three months, my my voice had dropped noticeably, and within six months, it was unrecognizable. Um, and I was also starting to work out in the gym. And I, of course, I, I was not super strong. I mean, I, I was never super strong, but like I was starting to work out, and I was seeing the newbie gains. And then you just slap testosterone on top of that. And my numbers were going up, and I, you know, was pretty happy. And my body was changing in ways that I thought I wanted. Um, and in, in ways that I had thought that I needed, and that was very exciting. And it was, what sort of ways, what were you noticing the most? Um, mainly the voice, uh, some body recomposition, uh, the voice was the main thing to drop though. And mm. strength. Yeah. Strength. Did you feel different? I mean, like not physically, was there, was there any emotional, uh, component other than the fact that you, you liked the fact that this was a process that you were undertaking? Did you find yourself either easier to, to anger or, uh, less creative or I don't know anything else you noticed? Um, I didn't notice a psychological impact of hormones directly until I probably reached full dose. Um, so I'm very fortunate and this I felt this way even when I was, you know, still deeply trans identifying. I'm very fortunate that I went to a provider that didn't just put me on full dose testosterone right away. Um, they at least had a little bit of common sense and thought, okay, we're gonna start at a really small dose and taper up in small increments and assess tolerance and see how this is gonna go instead of just that because there's some people, even like I there were some YouTubers that I followed that they went in and they start on hundred milligrams of testosterone weekly right away. Mm. And it's I it really can screw people up. I mean, it could screw people up anyways, but it can really mess with somebody if you just blast them with testosterone out of the blue. Okay. So it takes six months, you said, to from between starting on testosterone and then going into surgery. When do you first meet the surgeon? How does that process get underway? Um, so I started testosterone in late December of 2017 and by March, April, um, CHOP was back in contact with me and they were like, how's testosterone going? Are we still feeling like top surgery is the next objective? Cool. We'll get you in touch with the surgeon. And so I got, I think I had my appointment in April, um, and like that was just kind of an assessment uh, consultation, and we were able to schedule for mid-June pretty easily. What was the conversation about risks, rewards, reversibility? Um, honestly, I, I think I don't remember much about risks being invest um, talked about. Mostly it was about methods. Um, so in top surgery, I'm not sure if you're, I, I will try not to get too graphic here, but there are different kinds of um, top surgery or double mastectomies um, that are performed in female to male um, 
transitional surgery. So there is the most typical one, which is double incision with nipple grafts, um, which more closely resembles what a double mastectomy would look like for a female cancer patient. Um, in, that's the one where you see like the two big scars and then like the nipples are basically taken off of the breasts and like grafted back on in a male position. But then there's another procedure um, called periareolar, um, or there's also another one called keyhole where essentially if there's so if there's a small enough amount of breast tissue, they can kind of just make little incisions near the nipples and go in and um, remove the tissue out and sew it back up. They don't have to make these two big incisions. Right. Is that um, kind of like liposuction? Yes. Um, actually, the procedure itself is very similar to um, if men get surgery to remove gynecomastia. What's gynecomastia? Um, gynecomastia is enlarged breast growth in men. Okay. Which could be um, due to uh, hormonal fluctuations, uh, maybe uh, Klinefelter syndrome. could also be because of weight issues, um, okay. depending on the circles that you run in, uh, steroid abuse. Without massive, uh, without big scars, and so you, but you were basically given the option of these. Um, well, I w- I was told what he was going to do. He went with the periarior approach because um, he felt he could get away with it. Because um, I was kind of, I was like a size B. He's like a big size A, small size B, and he he said, you know, I I don't think I need to make the big incisions. I think I can just um, go in with small incisions um, underneath. And, you know, kind of scoop things out. You'll have drains for a week. Um, should be fine. Low complication rate. Okay. So you went with that? Mm-hmm. How'd it go? Um, I mean, it was a pretty easy process for me. I didn't really have um, any major complications. I, I um, had to manage the drains. So when you have this procedure done, you get like... Um, it, I forget what they're called, but uh, JP drains um, that are put inside the chest wall and they kind of poke out um, the sides like right below your armpits and you have to manage those for a week post-op while you wear either like a post-surgical binder or like this sticky dressing that goes across your chest. And um, I was kind of squeamish at the time, so but you have to measure um, and empty the drains every day um, and measure the fluid and keep track of it. Um, and that, that, that was an interesting task. Um, I, I would say that was probably the most quote-unquote traumatic part of it and, and getting the drains pulled because they said, oh, it's going to be a painless process, but um, I didn't take any painkillers before having that done, and then I got them pulled, and that was an interesting time. Uh, not yeah. painless. You're like, oh, it's painless if you're on Percocet, and I'm like, oh, I didn't take any Percocet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any Percocet? <laughs> uh, okay, and wh- what's your mom's attitude towards all this, towards the pace of uh, your diagnosis and then onto the drugs and then onto the mastectomy? Um, she was under the influence. I, at first, she was very hesitant. Um, she made it clear, and I, I saw this looking back at the medical records, which I obtained last year, Um that she was she wanted to be supportive of me but she wanted to be she was very cautious around permanent changes because they're permanent and she also had her theories her two theories that was that were that I was doing this because of sexual abuse and because of the fact that I was gay and that she and the church had a problem with that um but because of um multiple things that were said, studies that were thrown around, and then the final nail in the coffin of being told by the clinician that um, children that don't transition have a 40% likelihood of um, in 
those words in in the words of the clinician sorry clinician successfully committing suicide not attempting suicide successfully committing suicide um when my mom heard that she was like i have no choice like this is how i have to keep my child alive so Mm -hmm. everything that happened after that was okay this is going to help keep my child alive better alive son than a dead daughter as the uh, the trans slogan goes so is there any basis to the 40 percent claim Do you know where that comes from um i i i'm not terribly well versed in the literature regarding uh transition and pediatric transition i believe um from what i've heard i think it's like 40 to 41 percent um attempted suicide or maybe it's suicidal ideation i don't know i i know for a fact though it is not um successful suicide so i know that that was misquoted i think it also has something to do with again the cohort that you're talking about if you're talking about people who have persistently and insistently from a very young age been the wrong gender and they are comprehensively thwarted throughout their lives uh then that would be a different you would get a different result than if you are including in your uh your kind of sample group anyone who had ever requested or suggested proposed the idea of um of transitioning nonetheless let's park that for a moment so you have the double mastectomy and your voice is where you want it to be and you've got some of these other physiological changes like your muscle growth and so on and at what point do you start to question all this It's interesting because I've been trying to figure out um, when the questioning began. I think it really began full force in 2022 um, or like late 2021, early 2022. And sorry, how long is that after you got the mastectomy? Uh, Let's see. I got it in June 2018. So let's say June 2022. So about four years afterwards. So you live a few years as a dude uh in a reasonably happy situation i mean what is your mental state over the period of time when you're um relatively speaking it was i had my ups and downs um i was never uh suicidal to the extent of needing to be hospitalized again i i dealt with uh bouts of severe depression um i was admitted into an outpatient eating disorder program in late 2019 um, and kind of dealt with that for a few years. Um, but my mental health was generally better. Um, and I, I mean, I was, I was pretty happy in how I was presenting and at least I could put on a good show because, you know, I finally get to shop in the men's section, which I was never allowed to do because I was a girl, despite the fact that the clothes just fit better off the rack because I had broader shoulders. Um, you know, I got to wear what I wanted. I got to actually cut my hair um, like I wanted to, but I wasn't allowed to because, well, that's for boys. Um, you know, I got to do the things that I wanted to do and I didn't have to lie about liking men. I could openly like women and it would be okay. Um, so that part of it was really cool. Um, and my, my mental health in spite of those ups and downs and those spikes was generally better. Um, because I, I thought I had finally found the fix that, you know, oh, this entire time, all of my problems, you know, besides the childhood abuse and the eating disorder and the mm. depression and stuff, all, all of my other problems are caused because I was meant to be a man. I was meant to be male. And now I'm, I'm, you know, living my true authentic self and my true authentic life. And, 
you know, this, this is it. This is the fix. I can actually be my, my true self. So, okay, so, I mean, it was, so fast forward to last year, uh, what starts changing? I think part of it was, um, having to reckon with my declining health. Um, so kind of before I was in nursing school, I was a little bit of a meathead. Um, I, I didn't have like super impressive numbers. I was into powerlifting and stuff, but like at one point I could deadlift well over 400 pounds, which is pretty good for a biological female. Um, and from that point up until like when I had to drop out of nursing school, I went from deadlifting over 400 to not being able to lift 40 pounds at work, um, you know, working in a grocery store. And I went from being able to run a 5K to not being able to even go into a grocery store for five minutes. Um, went from being able to get straight A's and stay awake in class near photographic memory to almost flunking out of nursing school because I can barely stay awake in class, not being able, barely making it through clinical, uh, nearly making med errors, um, and just generally feeling awful and confronting this, thinking, God, is this my new reality? And um, when you're thinking about your body and the changes that you've made to your body and all that stuff, it kind of starts to uh, trigger some memories. And I was thinking about a lot of things about my life and my life decisions. Um, and I, I, I don't know how or why that triggered the idea of transition regret, but that's when it started for me was really starting to confront like, gosh, has my life changed? Am I now, you know, for lack of better terms, somewhat disabled because of this and did that lead to another rabbit hole of internet searches and yet more videos from the other side um ironically enough no not for a few months it, it led to some internet searches but that was more so me trying to figure out what the hell was going on with me because i had gone to all these specialists and um nobody could figure out what was going on or they just told me oh you're just stressed or oh you just need to work out more um, they wouldn't run tests or they would run blood tests and they were all coming back normal and they were just like, oh, sorry, we can't help you. Um, and so, you know, I, I investigated chronic illness stuff, um, but I didn't really start looking at the trans stuff until probably September. And that was when I was uh, following some people on Instagram, uh, primarily Buck Angel, um, who was affiliated with Gays Against Groomers and talking about, um, I think he shared something about Chloe Cole and uh, Standards of Care 8 and how that was just released. And I remember reading it and thinking, this this is completely crazy. Um, standards of Care have gone out the window, um, kind of pushing away my own questioning and then reading Chloe Cole's story and then reading other detransitioner story and thinking it was like the worst thing in the world and also weirdly resonating with it, but not willing to recognize it yet. Um, and that's when I started to investigate detransition more, more so from a uh, place of trying to understand a quote unquote different point of view. Um, but still thinking, oh, I'm trans, I transitioned, it was the right thing. I didn't regret this, but we need to understand people who did so we can keep it from happening again. Right. And do you think in hindsight that maybe that was a way of, I don't know, extracting yourself from your own predicament, making it theoretical, making it intellectual? so that you didn't have to confront what had happened to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, it, this realization, coming to the realization that um, you've made this big of a mistake and that people around you have kind of advocated for you to make this big of a mistake and that you've done this thing for several years and now you are taking a step back and realizing it was just the wrong decision, it, it's a really 
painful come down. I don't wish this on anybody. <laughs> um, so I, I can't fault myself or anybody for starting out um, kind of looking at this being like, well, I, I'm intrigued. I want to understand more. I deep down resonate with this, but I'm not willing to acknowledge it yet. Um, let's delve into this issue, but I'm still supportive of my camp. I still think I made a right decision. Right, right. When did that shift? So ironically enough, when I posted the video that went viral in October, I was um, I was still somewhat trans identifying, or at the very least, I was I was kind of regretting the transition. But I thought that there was really no way out. That you know, I had done it when I was sixteen. I was twenty one. I was I, I I thought that I looked too male to ever be taken seriously as a woman again, um, and that my preferences were I. It sounds awfully misogynistic, but that the fact that I liked wearing men's clothes and all that stuff meant that I should just stay male um, or stay presenting as male and that that was just my fate. This is what I've done to myself. I've just got to suck it up and deal with it. Um, and it was only after getting in contact with um, detransitioners who were all checking in on me after just the onslaught of attention that um, that video got and that I got Um in talking and realizing that, you know, there, there kind of was a way out or that at the very least I, I could try coming off of hormones. I could, you know, go to therapy and work on myself that nothing was definite, that I could explore these issues further, um, that I started to consider detransition. What was the reaction to the video that you made? Oh my gosh. Uh, so it, I think it hit conservative Twitter first. Um, and somehow it pushed all the right buttons. I remember I was talking with um, another interviewer and podcaster, Benjamin Boyce, about it. He said it um, it was un it, it was unintentional on my part, but it was like perfectly crafted to elicit a very big response, um, you know, both from the left and the right. Um, so I had a lot of uh, conservative Twitter. They were sharing it around, and it was like, you know, oh my gosh, this poor young woman. Look at what they did to her. You know, look at what testosterone did to her, and so on. Um, and some of them kind of fell into like the fear mongering camp of, oh, they're doing this to our little girls, and you know, look, you know, we need to hold these monsters accountable. Mm. Um, and you know, some of the detransitioners kind of rallying behind and saying, yeah, this kid was sixteen when they went in. For treatment and you know now they're kind of facing this and talking candidly about you know these perfectly safe and non-regrettable procedures that you know are they have permanent lasting effects um and that that was another thing too people say oh testosterone is partially reversible it partially is but most of the effects aren't and that was part of what the video was speaking on is that the majority of these changes that have happened to me are not going to bounce back just because I stopped testosterone. And I can confirm being four months off of testosterone that virtually nothing has changed. Yeah. Um, like some body fat redistribution, but everything else is the same. And then um, the left side of Twitter or the trans right side of Twitter just completely um, cut into my appearance. They called me ugly. They called me bald. They called me an idiot and stupid for, um, quote unquote, um, deciding to screw up my life. Um, like, oh, it's your fault for making this decision. Did you not look up what testosterone does? They thought that I didn't know what testosterone did because I was talking about um, one of the symptoms of testosterone used for me was a pretty noticeable male pattern baldness. Um, which I, because of PCOS, I did have a male pattern hairline prior to starting testosterone, but it was not nearly this bad. And I can guarantee you if I hadn't been on testosterone for over four years, 
my hairline would not be nearly as receded as it is now. Mm. Um, so people are accusing me of misinformation. I got called a Hitler, genocidal Nazi, told to kill myself multiple times, got multiple death threats. It was, it was quite the ride. Extraordinary. Did you have any conflictedness about becoming a <clears throat> a poster child for the for the conservative side of things? I mean, I know that you went on Tucker Carlson, and you know your video was featured in videos by uh, by like Matt Walsh and people who dedicate their entire lives to essentially. I mean, they think that they're protecting children, but there is also something of a mass panic or a mass hysteria around around this that is uh, unhelpful to people who are happily trans and just want to get on with their lives. Were you have you been worried about sort of being played or becoming a pawn in a in people's culture wars? I have been concerned about that since I saw Matt Walsh repost the video. Um, and everybody, oh, the, the other thing that was really crazy was that there was this conspiracy theory. There are multiple conspiracy theories. Uh, one conspiracy, the, the main theory is that, that this was all staged, um, that I planned this video. It was a scripted video um, that I planned and that because of who I followed, I followed, um, as they say, alt-right accounts intentionally. Um mm -hmm so that they could find the video and signal boost it. And so I could cause mass hysteria. And that um, I, some people even went as far to saying that I wasn't trans and, and not like in the sense of, oh, you transitioned, but you were never actually trans. No, people were going around spreading rumors that I was in fact a biological man that right. was being paid um, by a company associated with Gays Against Groomers to make this video. Um, so there was that yeah. whole crazy conspiracy theory but i frankly was kind of horrified with how fast a lot of these very conservative um like youtubers and media outlets were picking this up um and what they were saying and especially i was i honestly i was pretty scared when my clip ended up on tucker carlson i, I didn't find out until a couple days after when i started getting messages on twitter and they're like hey you're the person i saw on tucker and i'm like you saw me where mm. <laughs> excuse me oh i see i thought that you'd been on tucker he just played your clip no they yeah they played my clip and they also got the facts wrong they said this is what happens when you give puberty blockers to a 15 year old and i'm like you know if you're going to air the clip could you at least check my feed before you <laughs> like no it wasn't Why? 15 it was never on puberty blockers get your facts right oh i see you didn't take puberty blockers but you did take testosterone when you were 16 um well i had i had just turned 17 like a month um before starting testosterone right okay um and then on the other side, as you said, I mean, I, I, all I saw when your clip initially passed my through my feed was a, a, a tremendous amount of hate from the from the cohort that's closer to me than conservatives, which are progressives. Uh, just, I guess, I guess, feeling offended that you were pointing to something that they think doesn't happen, or that they that their literature claims doesn't happen, and abusing you and pillorying you for i don't know exaggerating your plight or like oh boo hoo hoo like it's almost like your story is the price that we have to pay on the path to our glorious future of trans acceptance and so your story is not valid somehow or is is fabricated somehow um it, it's interesting because i 
I think it was a friend of mine, Michelle, who is um, also a detransitioner from Canada. Um, she put it this way that she said, uh, transition-related healthcare has turned from healthcare into a service um, that patient, and you know, you're no longer a patient, you are a customer and you're buying a service. And so if you're buying a service from somebody, um, the only person that you can blame at the end of the day, um, if that service fails, um, is the, the customer. The way that she put it, it was pretty interesting or um, another friend of mine um, who said transition um, cannot fail, it can only be failed. Um, so I, I saw that attitude just play out um, right. it's your just fault. over and over again. again. It's your fault. The sexual abuse was your fault. Your chronic illnesses were your fault. Moving from moving to Pennsylvania was your fault. Your mental health issues were your fault. Failing trans, your transition was your fault. Yeah, and it, it was it was really interesting. It was especially jarring to see um, YouTubers, um, particularly one Ty Turner, and there are a couple others too, that I had grown up watching. Female to male YouTubers, people who make their entire living, their entire all of their content is based on them being trans and trans acceptance and talking about transition. And some of those people, specifically Ty Turner, his videos were some of you know the videos that in made me think that transitioning would be the right move for me like the one year on testosterone and watching all of the updates and you know watching him kind of grow into his own um and then to just see him like see my video and blatantly just call me out and you know say well it's not my fault that you made a wrong decision stay mad bald that was basically what he said well i remember he said stay mad bald and then proceeded to upset some of his followers who were like well i'm mtf and i struggle with hair loss how how does that impact me or other ftm um followers that were like well i kind of struggle with hair loss too and then he pr proceeded to backtrack and was like well bald is hot but i never said bald was bad it's it's okay um but seeing you know these people that i had looked up to these people that i had followed just turn on me mm. and it, it, it was kind of jarring did that do a number on your mental health? Um, yeah, the, the entire thing. I would like to say that I, I coped relatively well in the beginning, and I had talked to people, and they were like, well, you're doing a hell of a lot better than I would do, and approaching this with a lot more grace and gravitas than I would. But in all truth, I was dissociating throughout the entire thing. Um, and the first few weeks was fine, but I, I wasn't really letting myself feel the emotions um, of both, you know, like the online harassment, because it was, it was multi-platform. I was just on Twitter, but people were talking about me on Twitter. They were talking about me on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. They were talking about me everywhere. Mm. Um, and I was receiving, um, I, I was queued up that there was a couple people sending me death threats, or not sending me death threats, but they were threatening me um, with death. Like on TikTok, there was a woman that threatened to bash my head in with a hammer on um What's it called? Twitter. That was a fun one. And then she threatened Buck Angel um, because he called her out about it. And then she changed the prompt to basically say that she was going to bash Buck Angel's head in with a hammer. Um, I think she's been reported. I hope she's having a, a better time. Um, sorry, that was a little tangent. Um, <laughs> That's okay. It's just unbelievable what comes out of the world on social. Yeah, uh, but I, sorry, I, I guess the point I was trying to make was I, had compartmentalized all of that. And so I think I just reached a certain point of fatigue and I felt the feelings. And that was when I really confronted, you know, like, okay, I'm a transition regretter. I did this, but like really emotionally, like actually feeling that 
and confronting the fact that I transitioned because of abuse and I transitioned because I wanted to trans the gay away. And that was, that was kind of when the walls came crumbling down for me. And that was when I sought intensive outpatient because I was just like, I'm, I'm crumbling. I'm falling apart because of this realization and because of everything that's happening right now. That's interesting. I haven't heard that term before. I wanted to trans the gay away. Mm -hmm. uh, as we've heard the term, I want to, you know, you, you can pray the gay away if you're religious, just pray hard enough and you won't feel gay anymore. But to trans the gay away is, I guess, another illusion that people can go for if they don't want to be gay, they can opt for this alternative, which in your case hasn't worked. Um, so you stopped taking testosterone, uh, you're now getting the mental health support you need. Is there anything else you can or are looking at doing or are you in a state of like i'm gonna find find a way to love myself as i as i am um so i've also um gotten laser hair removal on my face uh part of that is also because um of the eds my skin is really stretchy and i've also just always had issues with the facial hair growth i haven't had too much but it's definitely noticeable um but i could never really get like a shave like i could never shave without some sort of irritation i could never shave without cutting my skin um i would always get ingrown hairs that would get inflamed also because of the testosterone use um once i hit full dose i had really severe cystic acne like my face was swollen, there was pustules, I went to a dermatologist, I was on oral antibiotics, topical antibiotics, tretinoin, um, they threw a bunch of stuff at it, and it just wasn't making a dent. Um, and it eventually subsided with time, but like with the history of acne, and plus being on the testosterone, and just, you know, all the facial hair, like the, the way that the hair was growing in, it was just really irritating and hard to manage. So I figured that was probably one of the the least invasive changes I could make. And not having a five o'clock shadow would maybe help a little bit mm -hmm. in people somewhat believing that I was a woman. Um, so I did that. And I mean, that that's just kind of more of a personal thing in terms of it's just nice to not have to shave as much. And my face doesn't hurt now because facial hair is growing in. Because yeah. um, for me, it was painful. It was painful when it grew. Right. Right. Um, uh, otherwise, I am not really doing much of anything. I'm taking things slow. Um kind of just seeing where I'm going to be. I, I don't think I'm going to seek any reconstructive surgery personally, because I just, I don't see a point. I don't feel like that's something that I need to do psychologically. Um, and what do you think of your sex as being or your gender as being, if they're the same? Um, well, it, it's interesting because I, I don't, I don't feel like a woman, but in talking to people, they're like, yeah, well, there's no like inherent feeling of being a woman. You just are. But if we're going based off of stereotypes of how people behave and how they dress, I still fit the male stereotypes, but I'm much more comfortable with saying that I am a woman and I am female, um, but I, I happen to look very masculine. I'm a very masculinized woman. I, I'm much more okay with saying that. Do you, do you use? Um, well, right now I'm still currently socially presenting as male. Um, and all of my records say male. Everything's changed over birth certificate, social security. Um, in articles and stuff, and there's certain people in like the gender critical circles that regardless of what pronouns you ask them to use, they're just going to use whatever. Um, like I, I'm fine with people using that people who are who aren't quite inside the the bubble enough to know what gender critical is and so on. I even find the terms a bit confusing. You're saying that 
there are anti-trans, let's just call them what they are, there are anti-trans people who just refuse to believe that anyone can be trans and therefore will always use the sex that was assigned at birth as being the sex. So even if you're a, you know, a fully masculine presenting trans man like Buck Angel is, these people will just insist on calling you she. That's what yeah. you're about. So to them, you're always she. But I mean, we're not those people, and those people aren't the majority of people. So, are you? Have you ever played with they them? Does that make any sense to you? Um, I did originally when I was like considering the whole transition thing, and certainly if I'm talking about myself in the third person, I generally avoid using pronouns or I use like neutral language. Um, so, like I was, I was writing something, and I'm like, hey, does anybody remember that kid that went viral in October for posting a video about the effects of testosterone? Yeah, that was me. Um, but instead of saying like, you know, woman or anything like that mm-hmm. or trans guy, I, I kind of just try and stay the middle lane. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm still navigating that personally. I'm also interested in what. So, what do you, what do you take away from all this in terms of your insight from your personal experience about the whole? roiling culture war around this because it's interesting that earlier in this conversation you were saying that in your religious upbringing they taught you you know in your youth church would would say that homosexuality is just a fad and it'll pass in in religious youth group um you now hear people saying that that transgender ideology is is a fad it'll pass they use people like you and stories like you as as pawns to try to push that narrative and to try to undermine the the experiences of people who have had a persistent uh, transgender experience since the you know as as early as they can remember, um, clearly homosexuality is not a fad. It doesn't pass. It's it seems to be a reasonably fixed thing in most people's lives. There's a bit of blurriness at the edges. We're all a little bit gay. We're probably all a little bit bi. But you know, people people tend to find their lane and then stay in it. Do you think that gender is the is is more like that or is it more fluid do you feel uncomfortable like thinking about gen about transgenderism as as potentially a fad that will pass how do you reconcile them it's hard because i'm still trying to figure that out there was a period of time where admittedly i was pretty radicalized i you know thought that all people that transitioned were let me let me clarify what i'm about to say i do not hold these beliefs anymore this was just me trying to Mm. process and also being surrounded by a bunch of very right-wing people i thought all trans people were delusional that it was you know a fool's errand that transition was useless that it was just big pharma trying to take your money and well i do agree that there is def there can be a financial incentive for um specifically like plastic surgeons um you know, trying to get people to get transgender surgeries. I, st- I maintain the belief that I had previously that there definitely are some people with very persistent gender dysphoria that probably will benefit from a medical transition and living as the opposite sex or, you know, living in a different way than their birth sex because psychologically that is going to be more beneficial than trying to live as their birth sex. But I also would like to assert that um, a lot of the newer generation, such as myself, um, and even some of the young adults in the informed consent model that are just, you know, walking into Planned Parenthood and getting hormones and all of that stuff, that the lack of uh, psychological evaluation or proper psychological evaluation is not ruling out any possible other issues. Um, 
So I, I think you can hate your birth sex for different reasons than being transgender. And we're just assuming there's a, there's a cohort of people that are assuming that if you hate your birth sex, that means you're trans. It doesn't matter like, you know, that that's just it. You were meant to be the opposite sex. No questions asked. Can't question it. You're transphobe. Here's your hormones. Um, I don't think that's true. I think we need to take a balanced and nuanced approach to it. Um, I, I don't think everybody that is seeking medical transition right now probably should be, but I don't think that it should just be off the table either. I think there are certainly people that still benefit from it. But if you're in, in my situation um, or similar situations to me, there's definitely some other issues that just weren't being looked at that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some of these cases, we need to slow down and look at the surrounding issues and not just assume that um, you hate your birth sex because you're trans. Casey, good luck to you. Thank you for hitting me up. It's amazing to hear your story. And it's, I, I really wish you all the best. You've been dealt so many bad hands in your youth that I'm, I'm glad that it sounds like you've kind of found, uh, found your lane and found your thing. So all, all, all our love from me and my, uh, my listeners. And please keep me posted and let me know how you're going. All right. Thank you very much for having me, Josh.